welcome to the podcast. Before I get going, I'd like to take a moment to just thank my editor extraordinaire, Nova Salvador. She does a great job for us inserting all of these photos and graphs and uh, making sure this all works reasonably well. Both of us are coming down a learning curve in this particular art form called a podcast, and we have a lot of fun doing it, so I hope you'll enjoy in this episode and the next one of the Fit Professional One podcast, I'm thrilled to bring you a world-class athlete named Rob Lee. He is a world champion cross-country mountain biker, and now he's a coach of Olympians and pros. And we get to spend some time with him understanding the concept of toughness and mental toughness as it relates to sport and how it might roll over into your particular profession and life in general. Part one, we're going to spend some time going over the concept of adaption and how important being consistent over time in your deliberate practice drives that home and ultimately helps you get the adaptions that you need to get the performance gains that you want. Over the course of that discussion, we'll absolutely be bringing in how these concepts roll over into not just the sporting part of your life, but really your career and all parts of your life. It's really going to be a good deal. Next, we're going to spend some time on focus. Rob has a unique perspective on focus. I can't wait for him to share with you. Followed by the observation with Rob's vast experience over time that coaches have a holy grail. And what it is, is trying to figure out what the right amount of training is. If you undertrain, you don't get the adaption. If you overtrain, you get into a fatigue zone. So finding that over time, not only in the sporting aspect of your life, but also in your career and your life in general can be very beneficial. I think you're really going to enjoy what Rob has to say about that. Then in part one, near the end, we will start to get into the concept of mental toughness and listen to how Rob quantifies this and uses it to his advantage, not only in cycling, but life in general. It's an amazing observation and gives you some great techniques that you can use along the way. And then finally, to close out part one, Rob will start his discussion on what a level one, a level two, and a level three athlete are and how those work to really drive you toward enjoying the process and embracing the process more than the outcome. And by doing that, you actually start to get the outcomes you're after. It's really an interesting discussion. So without further ado, let's get to it. So with that, Rob gave me a little background. He's a full-time coach specializing in endurance and ultra-endurance cycle coaching for athletes at all levels, offering coaching in mountain bike and road cyclists from all over the world. It's pretty cool that his current clients include an ex-Olympian, two world champions, and a bunch of prominent age groupers all kind of burning it up in their respective races. And I imagine that's kind of all over the world as well. His related performance includes three years consulting for Drag to Zero, regional coach for British Cycling, and six years as a race team manager and head coach. He's originally known as an ultra-endurance mountain biker and really was the benchmark for ultra-athletes in the UK in the mid-2000s. His results include, wow, 139 race victories, a Masters world title, and numerous ultra cycling records. He's also, I think this is pretty cool, featured in really all the major uh, cycling magazines, a couple of books, and even a film. 
and then also was inducted into the UK Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in 2013. He started being a coach and his journey began in 1995. And he has the knowledge and experience that really comes with doing that job for just a long, long time. And I've experienced that personally. Full disclosure, Rob is my coach of about two years now. And that's really cool. And besides me, he's helped just a ton of athletes exceed their personal dreams and ambitions over the years. But he just doesn't coach athletes. He's also been kind of the coach's coach, bringing nine coaches in particular to prominence, as well as mentored them along the way. And as a result, has built just a really cool and effective coaching business. So with that, Rob, boy, it's great to have you here with us today. And I know the listeners and me as well are just dying to hear about your journey across all of this and uh, really what brought you here today. So let's hear it. What's the story? <laughs> How length of version do you want? <laughs> oh, we want the long one. We want the cool one. Yeah. I just say, uh, yeah, it's really great to be on. Thanks uh, for having me on the podcast. My journey. I like to think of my journey really as being a bit of being in the right place at the right time, not too full, forced or pre-planned, something that kind of developed over time as I, as the sport evolved and as I evolved as a person, as an athlete and as a coach. Before mountain biking, I was into skateboarding. So that oh. was my first passion was skateboarding. Huh? Um, it was very, um, you know, my world was really quite small. I lived in a small town in the Midlands in the UK. Um, parents who were very supportive, but who had to work very hard. We, you know, we it wasn't that we were poor, but we weren't wealthy either. They, you know, they worked really hard um, to provide me and my sister with as many opportunities as they could. Um, and they were always, they gave us the right balance between discipline and thinking about your future and actually enjoying now and doing things you want to do and having that freedom to explore the world or explore your part of the world or what you wanted to try so well skateboarding was really not you know sort of a, a vigilante sport or something you know it wasn't popular at all it wasn't mainstream um it was you know, and it probably still is now. It had a sort of a bad boy image at the time, but that didn't stop my parents from supporting me, taking me to skate parks when I was before I was able to drive and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of it was really, you know, I go to school, often skateboard to school. Um, one of the teachers there, the PE teacher, used to let us skate in the hall if it was wet before school in the PE hall. And um, there was a group of us, and we were really, you know, as I say a group, there was like five or six of us. And we were kind of the outcast kids. And for, if I'm in the majority, I'm probably in the wrong place. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that kind of appealed to me in the early day. And then skateboarding started to grow and it started to become more mainstream. And also the competition, I was started to do competitions, street competitions and mini ramp and small bowl competitions. And it started to morph from something that was really judged on how good you were to being judged on whether you did the right things that were currently on trend and being part of the majority within skating didn't sit with me really at all and at the same time another friend of mine had 
he used to race carts. Um, he's a very good kart racer, motor carts. Um, and he'd had a, he'd had quite an accident in the cart, and that had seriously put him off, not wanting to die in his late teens in a cart. He'd started mountain biking, which was this new exciting thing. You know, the world championships they'd had they'd only just had the first world championships, and it was before mountain biking was accepted as a cycling discipline by the UCI. So again, it wasn't mainstream in any way. And it was kind of new, exciting. And he one holiday, he he said to me, Oh, well, you, you know, what are you doing? Do you want to come mountain biking? You can use me my old bike. I've got a new bike. And I went mountain biking and discovered all these things that were between the normal of life. So I'd kind of got into that. I'd always felt always for me, I'd always felt that there was a big gap in life from what I could see, you know, like as admirable as it was, I looked at, you know, the people I knew, my parents, my parents' friends and so on and so forth. And I'm like, you get up, you go to work, you come home, you make dinner, you put your kids to bed, you get up, you go to work. I'm like, there must be more to life. <laughs> <laughs> and I started cycling, not really looking for to be a great cyclist. I, I started cycling with my friend and discovered, oh, wow. There isn't just city centres and town centres and a road that leads me. I hop on this road, I go to that road, and I go to that road, and then I'm in the next city. There's all these forests <laughs> and, you know, these just hidden places with big lakes. And, you know, we just ride into the woods and jump into the lake. And, you know, and that really, you know, although my parents, you know, my parents had involved us in the outdoors, we hadn't gone deep, deep outdoors. If, if you like, on a consistent basis. And so this was suddenly in quite contrast for me. And that's really what got me hooked was mm. that feeling that it was something different to everyday life. I was good at school. I was academically quite bright or um, able to absorb things quickly and understand, but I didn't enjoy it. So I wasn't academic, you know, I was creative. So then my my background is actually um, my first career was in print. So at school, I liked art, didn't really like any of the academic subjects, although I could do them all when I got my grades. Went to college, did art. At some point, started to realise that I would have to make a living. <laughs> at some point, my parents were no longer going to support me and I would have to make a living. Um, and so looked at art and, and was just like, yeah, that's sort of a road to poverty <laughs> <laughs> and didn't fancy it. And that morphed into photography and then art and design and then print. And then I could see the commercial. I was doing graphic design. And I remember distinctly look, going into um, looking, getting to the end of my graphic design national diploma, I think it was. And going and finding the directory for national for graphic design companies or I right, send a CV out shall I go to work or shall I do a degree and um, and realizing that there were more courses for graphic design than there were graphic design companies in the <laughs> UK so so every single company has to take 30 people on every year I'm okay at graphic design, but I'm not excelling at graphic design. So now my odds are bad. So um, 
went into print. Print was better, way better. And I did a commercial course that took me into a job. Uh, by then I discovered cycling. And for me, it was really, when we think of, you know, the subject we're going to talk about today and the progression and setting goals and all this sort of thing, the, the, the main difference I see between the majority of athletes who I see now who come to me and my development, which is something that I know works. And when I've implemented that as a model for other people or got them to think that way, it's always worked, is that we had so little information. You know, we had, there, was, there wasn't all these races that were instant. You didn't have dots to track and you didn't have all this exposure to all these people who are winning these races. It, a magazine came out once a month with some results in the back and they were two months out of date and there was one interview with one pro in a magazine and you got 12 editions in a year. Um, when I wanted information about how to train, there really wasn't much. And, you know, I said, hop, I, we, live, we lived on a main line that was a couple of hours out of London and the bookshops in regular places in the UK, you couldn't get a book about training. You couldn't even order one. Like, what book is it, you know? So uh, I used to go to a place called Sporting Pages. I used to catch the train to London for two hours, catch the tube, walk across, order a book. We'll phone you when it comes in, catch the train back. Two weeks later, we've got this book for you. Catch the train in. You know, that was performance back then. British Cycling did not have a performance plan. You know, we didn't have... World's team was just basically... It was all amateur back in that day, you know. So there wasn't really all these things to, to make me think, yeah, I want to be world champion or, I want, you know, I want to go and do the transcontinental or, you know. So for me, it was really, in, in many respects, I was kind of saved from the pitfalls that I see other people have now in that my world was this big. And when I started with my first coach, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be faster than my friends, <laughs> you know. And that was something that was door, right? <laughs> that was above how good I was, hmm. but it wasn't over here somewhere. So that step to that step, that's always how my progression has been. Oh. It's been, and it hasn't started. I want to be world champion. Three or four years in, when I got my elite license, I realized one day I'd like to be national champion. But when I did my goal setting with my coach that year, I didn't say I wanted to be national champion. And he's like, I don't know if you're thinking big enough. And I'm like, I do think big enough, but I want to succeed in something I'm sure. possibly capable of this year. So what is it you really want? One day I want to be national champion. So I told my coach that back in 96, in 2022, I did it for the first time. Wow. <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> so for me, it's really... It, the bit that really rung true, you know, when I was looking through the stuff you sent me and particularly Magnus's book is, it's that understanding of who you are and what your capabilities are and marrying them up to what you're capable of and what the outcome is. And that's toughness. And so if your goal is there and you're there instead of this one here, you can develop the, the, the toughness because you've got plenty of time to do it you've got one whole year to get from here to here and it's possibly feasible today it might not be but it possibly is but if you train properly for a year 
you can perceive it as totally capable and you build strength as you go. When I was there, I want to be my friends. Well, now I want my sport license. Now I want my expert license. Now I want my elite license, you know? So now I'm here. And this is kind of, for me, that's how my pathway has always been. The same with my coaching, you know, my coaching journey. When I started my coaching journey, I didn't realize I was starting my coaching journey. So the guys who took me, who convinced me to come and help teach skills for them, for mountain bikers. So one of them was coaching me. They were like the prominent guys in the country who were leading the development of cycle coaching in the UK. And um, I mean, at the, at the time, one of them were, was coaching a young junior whose name was Brad Wiggins. <laughs> the other guy was writing a lot of the syllabus for, for what is the ABCC now. And as those guys moved on, they, they did the same thing and they wrote a lot of the syllabus that the British cycling coaches right now. But we didn't know any of that was coming, you know. And so you know, I started in 93 and now like the British cycling performance plan didn't start to like 2007 or something. Mm. So and even then that was, you know, when you talk to the guys now, how did they get their first coaches? Well, one of the guys rang up all the other guys who were elite. <laughs> do, you, do you fancy being a coach? <laughs> <laughs> You know, what do I do? <laughs> Teach people how to do what you do. Okay. <laughs> you know, so the journey for me as a coach is very similar to the journey as a racer is in that the final goals of I want to be brilliant or whatever, they didn't really exist. There wasn't a career path. I was in print. This was my hobby. So, you know, <laughs> and my hobby developed and developed and developed and developed and developed to the point where I, I'm cut right out from print and design, went into the bike trade because it was fun and easy and there was way less pressure and I could build my coaching while I was doing that. Mm. And even to that degree, my coaching, my coaching development and my coaching business was growing kind of by stealth without me realize, really realizing where it was. And I was, I, I was still working in a bike shop and people are like, oh, Rob, he used to go in the bike shop. And the and the you know two businesses I worked for, the owner and his wife, because they were both like couples, so they got a bit worried because I was spending more than my wages in the shop. Because <laughs> 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 I didn't really, you know, I'd reached a point where I didn't really need the wage from the shop. But these things kind of happen over stealth over time, you know. And I think that's, for me, why am I... You know, last year I went and I did the national championships, you know, and on paper, I should not finish anywhere near where I did. Like, you know, if you take me now and me when I retired like 12 years ago or whatever it is now, 15 years ago, is it? Something like that. You know, I'm like a good 10 kilos heavier. My threshold is lower. You know, my skills are good. My bravery is not as high. You know, my my self-preservation is it, it works really well, yeah. you know, but there's certain things that the main thing is understanding what the what the discipline actually entails and understanding what mental toughness really means in that environment, in that arena you know, and being able to really it's almost like, you know, then I was really light and I was fit and I could hit all these numbers, but I didn't really understand what it meant to do the event and what success required 
and I wasn't embraced with that. What is it you actually have to do and accept? And that's the bit is understanding who you are and what you can accept and accepting what the event actually is. So there's a lot of denial goes on, I see, with lots of athletes that it's going to be brilliant. And, you know, and they've fallen in love with the images they see online and the grainy, the guy with the grainy hands on Rafa, who's done the TCR. And it's just like the reality of doing a bikepacking race is it's horrible. Like, it's horrible. The guys who do really well, they know it's horrible. (laughs) They go there expecting it to be horrible and they expect to want to quit all the time. They know that's coming, so they don't quit. And so, yeah, my back, my, my development in both cycling, coaching, my business, it's all been a little bit of luck, right place at the right time. Cycling was building, particularly in this country and the USA, where the majority of my customers do come from North America or uh, Europe, but it was, UK initially was the sort of lion's share of building my business. Cycling, if it was still as it was back in the dark ages when I started, I wouldn't be doing this full time for a living because the customer base just simply wouldn't be there. So mm. some of it is is luck, you know, and I completely accept that. And some of it is just time in the game and taking the time to actually think, what is it? that makes people successful. And, you know, for me, I've always questioned everything. And I think that sort of came from one of my first coaches. He was like, you need to listen to everything. You need to absorb everything. And then you have to decide what's true or what's real for your scenario. And understand that everybody's scenario is slightly different. And if you can do that, you can probably coach. There's other elements, of course, but Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's... That's my story, you know, <laughs> rambling. Uh, that's really cool. We can, I, no, we not can rambling. dig into any bit of that that you want to. You want to. It, it's outstanding. First of all, there, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Is it's interesting? Uh, do you believe in luck or not? Right, right place at the right time. But you were prepared. And you were also aligned your passion. What became a passion with you with what you're able to do and. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll get to talking about that too, how powerful that is and making sure that you stick to things and make them happen because there's there's nothing easy, uh, certainly about business. Uh, you got to have more in the account at the end of the period than when you started. It, <laughs> that can be tough. And, and yeah. that is part of what I'm trying to do as a fit professional one with a tribe of of professionals uh, you know we're professionals first we have to have a means to live by we have to provide for our families we have to do all these things and there's innate pressures in there uh and as we've shared uh via emails a long time and for me it's been absolutely foundational and a requirement to keep the physical portion which parlays into the emotional and mental portion, what you talked about too, those guys that are super talented that know going in, they're going to reach a point where they want to quit. So I really want to get, I I want you to describe that kind of thing for us uh, too, as it goes. Um, This might be a a good time to interject my hypothesis. Uh, I call it the intensity multiplier principles. And today we're going to talk about toughness. I have 16 
And each one has two components. And the reason I did that was really because they're very complex. Toughness is unbelievably complex and it's hard to encapsulate all of it. So really what I'm after is what are the big levers of control? What, what can you pay attention to and get the biggest gain? And so what I put together is really my uh, roughly 40 years of being a professional, trying to stay in shape and seeing that roll over into the rest of my life. I've just noticed patterns and that's what engineers do. We, especially industrial engineers like me, we notice patterns, we create a hypothesis and then we try something <laughs> and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't yet fall flat on your face, but then you try again. And over time I've landed on these principles and for me, they're, they're largely hypothetical in nature and very interesting. So today I appreciate you being here because it's actually a way to scrub it, this particular one of toughness. And that's what I want to do over time. And hopefully we'll add research and such. But for the viewer, you'll see a graph come up on the screen about now. But for the rest of you listening, imagine the good old uh, mathematics, simple two-axis um, on the horizontal axis, we have pain. On the vertical, we have force. So I've defined the upper right quadrant as where you want to be. In other words, positive force drives positive pain. And if you'll imagine there is a line out in that quadrant kind of to the upper right, which starts upper left and falls to the lower right. And beyond that force and pain, because we know this about humans, and frankly, we could use the word failure in, in physics. But for humans, um, if we have too much force, too much pain, we get injured. So injury happens. So the point is, is there is some line that is for real. And what I've experienced over time is as you train, that line moves out a little bit, but it's not infinite. I mean, we're a human, we have limits, and you end up getting hurt. What also is really interesting on that graph, if you will, is if you go, what is negative force and what is negative pain? I just love kind of wrapping my head around that. So negative pain might be pleasure. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I want to actually explore when negative pain is actually functional. So I'm thinking recovery, which I'm actually kind of bad at <laughs> and I need to get better at. And, and then there's also things like maybe a massage, you know, unless they're going really deep tissue, then that's not <laughs> pleasurable, but it's very yeah, functional. <laughs> yeah. The other way, like negative force, what is that? Maybe it's someone doing something for you, but pretty much the lower quadrant to the left is weakness. It results in being weak. It results in not being mentally tough because you're not exercised. So that's another hypothesis that I think proves out an experience in many, many authors and coaches like you that if we don't work on it, we lose it. And you also can injure it. I think I may have experienced that recently last August. You can you yeah, can yeah. Maybe go more than you should and then you got to work it back similar uh, in a way to if you break an arm, uh, even after it's healed, you still have to do physical therapy uh, to make it work, et cetera. So that's the the lens, if you will, that we want to discuss. Uh, there's one more access that is predominantly important in every one of my principles. And that, if you can imagine an access, again, a third one that would come through the horizontal diagonal, that's time. And time is really quite interesting when we're talking about force and pain. We also both read a book by Steve Magnus, uh, 
called Do Hard Things, which we're going to reference. He covers a lot of cool stuff in here. There's another book uh, that a friend recommended that I just finished for that lower quadrant, really, and it's called The Comfort Crisis, and really does a nice job talking about how, frankly, if you don't do anything, you become weak. And <laughs> it can be a crisis both for an organization, uh, and we want to talk a little bit, bit about that today, too. How do these principles actually parlay into the rest of our life? Because that's, I use uh, way, way back being a student athlete. And now being a, a fit professional, which means I'm an amateur trying to get personal best, it's just so productive. And, and we really want to cover why that rolls over. You mentioned, Magnus, what are some of the, maybe a principle that really resonates with you that aligns with your experience coaching and as an athlete? It was the, the one that really stood out for me was his definition of toughness in that you really need two things to marry, marry up for you to get the right result and the result you're looking for, which is an understanding of yourself and where you currently are and the task in hand and what it entails. And so how, and this affects everything from, you know, he has a great start to a chapter in there where he describes what's essentially pacing and he describes the children setting off for the mile race and they all set off at a flat out sprint and then they get one lap around this track that they've got to do eight laps or something and realize how far it is. And they don't slow down a little bit, they slow down a lot. And this is really a lack of understanding of both. Both it, it, They probably understand themselves much more, but they didn't understand the task at all. And so they're suddenly overwhelmed at that point. And this really, for me, is the, it's almost like the foundation of the entire job. I always say like the, the reason I've won so many races is because so many people are appalling at pacing themselves. And it comes from a misunderstanding of what they need to do during the event and how long the event will last and how the event will feel married up to how they feel right now, but how that equates if they keep going at this pace, you know? And so I don't know if I'm just like completely blessed in that department. I've, I've often wondered this because pacing never really was a problem for me. Like I didn't have to, it was almost like I never had to learn it. I've, you know, thought many times I fought back and I've gone, when have I got pacing wrong? Like how, when's the earliest day of getting pacing wrong? And it's just like, I can't find it. Like it, you know, I go, I, oh, when I did cross country for the first time and it's just like, yeah, maybe I went too hard for like the first five minutes, but I didn't go any, I didn't go too hard for like half of it and then blow up. You know, I didn't, which is really common. You know, first time I did a 10 mile time trial, no, that didn't end badly. That was the start and the finish were fairly similar paces. You know, maybe I started, you know, we had heart rate monitors with no power meters. I imagine if we had a power meter, you'd go, no, you want to take 200 watts off the first 10 seconds or something. I go further back and it's just like, well, before when I was still at school, I ran cross country and it's just like, it was almost like I ran metronomically all the way from the start to the beat. You know, I didn't try and get rid of everyone at the start. People were ahead of me, but I would catch them and I would pass them. And so I, well, I may go back to like junior school with the egg and spoon race and the 50 meter dash. And it's just like, what was exactly the same? Like, for some reason, there's something inside me that's always understood pace. 
But the, the biggest challenge for me as a coach is when you realize that's not normal. <laughs> Most people are not like that at all. <laughs> so really the thing in the book that resonated for me was to be tough, you have to understand what the task is and you have to choose a task that is going to push you, but is possible. And then you have to go into that task in a way that you're under, you understand what all the implications are and what the pitfalls are and what to do when you feel X, Y, and Z. And some of that comes with experience. And that's why I feel my journey's worked perfectly for me and is a good example because we did, you know, I went through the license system first with the British Mountain Bike Federation. So my first races were only a, an hour long. And then I moved up to Calgary and they were an hour and a half. And then I moved up a Calgary and they were two hours. And then I moved up and they were three. Then long races came about and I started with a six hour and four hours and sixes and fours and six. And then, all right, I'll try a 12. Now I've been doing fours and sixes for three or four years. And all these things kind of align because I'm getting tougher and tougher. I'm getting better and better physically. The training for the one and a half hour race has brought my development to a point where it's not a massive leap to leap up to two hours. And I'm learning all the time where that point is where you are going a little bit too hard. So now you've got to go a little bit easier. I am learning where cramp came in for me. And I know that for you, cramp's a major thing. For me, cramp's always been part of my sport, but my development has always pushed it out slightly as I've gone. So now, you know, so in a six hour race, first time I did a six hour, I cramped for the last three hours. By the time I was moving to 12 hour races, I wasn't getting cramp in six hour races anymore. Yeah. But I think it was, it comes back to your line with time. You know, if I, if I'd gone straight into 24 hour races, I almost certainly would still be wrestling with cramp. That's, and people go into it and then there's this, right, how do we solve cramp for 24 hour racing? I have one roadmap for you. Start with cross country, <laughs> then go to marathon. And like in 15 years time, you probably won't have cramp in 24 hour races. <laughs> you know, a lot of my clients are in their forties, fifties, sixties. They don't want to hear that. <laughs> they got to wait till they're 75. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we need to find other ways through. So for right. me, it's always, it's trying to work out. Okay. How do we compensate for the lack of time? Because time will solve most things with consistency. You know, and it, I look at athletes now say to me, you know, I get new athletes and they're like, I'll do whatever it takes. And I'm like, okay, give me, give me 10 years. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, that's what it takes. <laughs> you know, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to try. I'll train as much as you like for a year. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, that's much harder to do, you know? So for a coach, it's developing mental toughness in an athlete is gets trickier and trickier the smaller the time frame gets and the further away the goal is from where we currently are as an athlete and further off the understanding of the athlete is as to how big that task really is compared to where they are. Mm -hmm. And so I always equate that really to, you know, if you, you say to me, oh, I want to get to Las Vegas, okay? So how do I get there? Well, the first thing you got to tell me is where you are. <laughs> I'll give you directions from here. You've got to drive to Heathrow. That's your plane. You, oh, there you go. Done. You yeah. know? <laughs> sure. No, I don't, I don't live in the southwest of England. Right. Okay. So this is the thing, you know, when we go back to mental toughness, I think is lots of people kind of 
you've got two options. You can set yourself up for success by understanding what what process you might have to go through and then allocating it a time frame. And then depending on how important a goal is for you, you've got to decide what other things give. So, yeah. you know, if you're thinking in the perspective of, you know, what you're producing in the, in the fit professional is really, you know, I've always looked at it and thought probably anybody with the right training application, motivation, dedication, all these things that kind of say the same, but when you break them down, they're actually different things. If they've got enough of that, anyone can excel at one thing. It's possible. Like it's not out of the realms you get. And that's what we do with pro riders. Someone does all that stuff. Someone picks them up and drives them to there. You know, someone gives them, they have a massage. Someone picks up the luggage. Someone sorts out the bike. You know, my mountain bike needs a new brake box. There's no, I don't go and fix that. I fix it because I'm a fit professional. But the pro, my brake needs needs brake pads. He's on the phone. Someone else comes, collects it. We don't even drop it off. Someone comes and gets it, takes it away, brings it back. They give him the other one. You know, they've got five each or something. You know, so we take all these things away. <laughs> Mental toughness, physical toughness, all these things that are easy to develop when you've got one thing to deal with. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I actually have in the can, I call it purposeful out of balance because of the yeah. sacrifices. I really learned it when I picked up my frequency uh, with you and what my goals were, et cetera, is you as a fit professional, I don't have someone doing everything else. <laughs> yeah. But it becomes part of the part of the training. It becomes it, you can't get rid of everything, but you have to get rid of something. So yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, you know. So I was saying like anyone can do one thing really, really well. Now, two things. Okay, you want to do two things really well. Okay, now you've got to start to think about the actual puzzle. You you know, you get like, you are going to have to have some sort of organization. You're going to have some sort of allocation of time and you're going to have to decide which one takes precedent at certain times. And this is where periodized training and things like this can be really useful. You know, you can, then you move on to free things. Okay. Free things is where most fit professionals probably are trying to be, I would imagine. When you've got like a, 18 year old 21 year old they usually for the most part they want to be a cyclist to so tell me they want to be pro they might be starting work they might not and they usually don't have a family so for most you know so three things usually for most people who i coach these days you know it's work family sport those things now you've got to be you've got to develop all the uh, it's kind of jenga now <laughs> or tetris you know which blocks go in where and you've got to move it quick and you've got to have some sort of organizational structure to make this happen because you can talk about mental toughness or it mental toughness in this respect is like it ain't gonna save you <laughs> if you're completely disorganized you leave everything to chance like your average 18 year old who i coach they what time you know i could phone up any of my youngsters and say what time are you training today tomorrow they'll decide tomorrow all right if i came around your house right now and said we're going in 10 minutes could you find all your kit no no <laughs> chance you know so we talk about toughness toughness when you talk in the concept of you know somebody who has more than two things in their life part of mental toughness is having routines having actual structure knowing what needs to be where when 
so that everything aligns and you, you're projecting into the future and going, right, so business is happening now. You might, if I look at my Training Peaks account, for instance, it's got, it's free calendars. It's my training, my work, and my family is on my Training Peaks account. And it's, and it's worked at, you know, I don't cross country ski. So I use the cross country ski boxes for my son's got to go for his diabetic appointment. You know, that's so, and we've got somebody viewing a house, you know, because we're looking to buy a different house or whatever, you know. So these are all in blue on there, you know. So I open up my Training Peaks account and I'm going, what's tomorrow and what needs to happen? All right, what's happening? When's the race? There's a race then. I know that the bike needs this doing to it. That's got to go in then. I can't do it that day. So the bike needs to be going in on Tuesday. It can't go, I can't be looking at it on Friday, you know. You, you can even make life really hard for yourself or really easy for yourself. Right. Now, when, it, when we, I talk about things you can have in your life, I don't know anyone who's good at four. <laughs> <laughs> I know lots of people trying to do four. <laughs> I know lots of trying to do five or six. <laughs> I don't know anyone who excels at four. You know, so for me, I think like the first thing for most people when they, if they come to me as a coach and they say, I want to win TCR, I want to win the Swiss Epic or whatever it might be, I, you know, any race at all, their local race or whatever. I, I'm looking at it and it, I, I'm like, I don't like to set people rigid structure. I want to learn them and find out what what's coming out the other side and what are the roadblocks as we go. Because when everybody's keen at the start, they'll tell you anything. Like, they just want you to make them win. <laughs> but, the, but the reality of life, their life, isn't that. So you, I'm kind of a detective to start with. And then we work on, okay, so uh, the most common thing for me is athletes say to me, I'll do whatever it takes. And then you get their life and they're like, you get that, I can't, um, yeah, me and my wife are going away for, for three months to New Zealand and I'm not taking a bike. <laughs> like dude like, <laughs> well you, you must do some exercise <laughs> you know or it's just like yeah i do i i do hockey on that day i go to yoga on this day and and i'm like i can't understand why i'm getting i'm not getting any faster on my bike and then i break it all down i'm like well you ride a bike once every two weeks <laughs> so <laughs> you know so i think for most people the first thing to if you want to develop your your toughness is really is goes right back to looking at your actual lifestyle and going what is it i really want from life and do i really want this you know lots of people tell me they want to be pro and then i ask them to describe a pro's life and they don't know what it is <laughs> you know and then I, well where does the idea come from do you really you know well everyone wants to be pro don't they and i'm like well i <laughs> I, I didn't, <laughs> you know, I thought about it and I'm like, no, I didn't like, I'll, I'll do some coaching as well. And I'll, you know, the opportunity was always there. And there were times when I was getting really good support and good money, but I was still doing something else that was not, I wasn't excelling at them, but I was learning something or doing something. And I wasn't just like, I've got to be a pro, you know, it, that's how I ended up in the bike industry actually I had gone full time and I go all right go training awesome come home my wife's at work what should I do <laughs> all right I'll sit in the hammock all right I'll have some lunch sun's out I'll go for a ride 
<laughs> I'm exhausted. Like the coach is like, well, you're doing twice as much training as I've set you. You know, yeah. you know, and this comes back to your force. You know, for me, I always look at mine's always a bell curve. So whenever I look at anything, especially with training, I think in bell curves okay. because we, you know, the thing that's always been the, the holy grail for coaching has always been what's the right amount of training? Because, you know, we do something, we do a bit more, we get a bit better, we do a bit more, we get a bit better, we do a bit more, we get a bit better. Do tons of it. I'll be awesome. I'll turn pro. Oh, I'm ruined. I've broken myself. <laughs> you know, and this is not, this is common, so common, unbelievably common, you know? So for me, so performance is always a bell curve in my mind. I'm like, here, bad, here, bad, somewhere here, optimal. Yeah. That's our dose. We're looking for that. But what is optimal? You know, for me at the moment, you know, if I look at me when I was 35, what was a week off is now a training week. <laughs> because the volume was so high, the amount of training was so high and the stress was so high. That was the top of the bell curve was right up here. And what I do now is down here, but that's actually the top of my bell curve now. Yeah. But what is an optimal stress for me to yeah. move? Yep. So, which comes back to, you know, what I was saying about before we started the podcast and you were like, how do you want to go? And I was just like, well, I freestyle and it develops. For me, with my cycling develop, the re I think the reason, the reason I can be nearly 50 and still compete with some of the younger guys in the national champs of the 24 is because I never really look, the past is done for me. It's just done. You know, it's just like, those are all good or bad memories, but they're not perspective on my performance in terms of where my future is going to be. So I always look at it for me. It's just like, I don't go, you know, oh, I've been ill. I've had COVID. I've hurt myself. I've been injured, whatever it is. I've had time off because we've had a baby so on i don't go oh my fdp used to be x and now it's down here for me it's always who am i today where am i today i want to be better tomorrow so better tomorrow is there better the next day is there better the next day is there and that's for me is always how you make progress with everybody yeah. the, all the limiters are always when i get somebody who wants to you know for me it would be if i said oh 2016 my fdp was 380 watts now it's 280 watts. I want to be back at 380. Well, it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a long time to do that. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm seven years older now. Or, mm. Yeah, seven years older, you know, and on the wrong end of the bell curve of age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where that performance is going to go. And I got to a very high level at some point. So I probably am trying to push up against the ceiling that is coming down, yeah. you know. If I hadn't started till I was 45, well, I'd still be heading up to hit reach sure. of potentially coming down, down roof. So for me, it's always like, I always think about who I am today and I match. And for me, that's, that's why when I go into a race like a 24, if I've committed to the race, my mental toughness is, is aligned with who I am today, not who I was one day, not how I used to perform, not that I, used, I coached the guy who might win's dad <laughs> 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And I'd known him since he was like three. <laughs> yeah. 
It's just, I'm here, my performance potential is this. So that's what I'm aiming for, this performance potential. The problem for most people in the race, and particularly at 24, is that they go into it with their heads aligned with their previous achievements. So I won national championships last year. So this year I want to win the European championships. No, no. Forgetting that when I went into that race, I wasn't quite a national championships level, but every single duck aligned for me. A few people got it wrong, and I had a good deal of, I made my own luck, but I didn't have any bad luck either, and I became national champion. And I fought tooth and nail, and I could have pulled the plug on it at any time in the last eight hours. Lots of people forget all of that. Yeah. They just go, I was national champion, therefore I should win. If I did national championships this year, I should win, because I was national champion. That's when you become mentally, you know, you end up on that. And I think for me, that's really where, in my mind, where that concept of good pain or pleasure is, where you allow yourself to believe you're still as good as your very best performance. You know, I have people all the time come to me and they say, I'm time trialist. All right, what do you want to do? I want to do a sub 19 minute 10. I get excited. That's fast. You know, that's a fast 10 mile time trial. What's your fastest time trial? Well, I've done 24, 28. 24, 27 is a PB. <laughs> yeah. If we get to 24, 27, if we get to 24, 19, you should be hopping up and down excited. You've been yeah. the fastest you've ever been in your entire life. But they're going to be disappointed for the whole season if they don't get a 19. That's just setting yourself up for a bad times. They're exponential performance curves. I mean, so many sports are that way where people can perform at a decent level and the difference for where they want to go is it might not be in their genetic makeup, but it's just all the time and sacrifice and investment in that result is like you said, they forget, they forget what, what all comes together. Um, some really cool things that I, I just like to, talk about the crossover uh, to the professional world yet you talked about this whole idea that Magnus brings up you know he talks about amygdala firing and I personally think that's an issue that might I might have but I also think it's very transferable to the you learn how to control your freak out yeah. in the sport like that last eight hours you started to talk about and there's certain coping things you do, but it's it's multidimensional, at least emotional and mental, plus your legs are burning or your back hurts or your your nutrition's off a little bit, whatever it is. Or you can <laughs> make really interesting corollaries to the professional world. So he uses the term respond instead of react. And yeah. uh, you know me, I, I do not have the pacing gene. I mean, I really <laughs> got to learn how to pace. And frankly, in my own world too, I tend to be, go, go, go uh, with me. I'll keep going. I won't be like the little kid on the track where they take off at a sprint and stop and walk. You know, I just keep going the best I can. And I've learned that I do much better pacing over time. So those experiments that you can do, uh, frankly, in a world for sport, when we're a... Uh, amateur athlete, if you take out the danger of a fall and screwing up your shoulders or getting a laceration or spraining your wrist, 
if you take all yeah. those things away, it's really not very high consequence. That's what I like about it. It's an interesting place to experiment. So the transfer then goes into your real world where you, you learn your limits with much higher stakes, like you said in those three things, family, sport, career, which is yeah. very much <laughs> defines a lot of the fit professionals out there. I've always felt with the crossover to real life is that if you're waiting to learn these things purely from life and not sport, to learn the same things and the same abilities that you might have to, the hurdles you've got to overcome and the thoughts you've got to deal with and the mental toughness you've got to kind of find in yourself or develop in yourself in the time scale of say, a 12 hour race, for instance, it's going to take you a decade because a race gives you this, it's hyper, hyper. Yes. Under, it's like looking through something under the microscope. You have to, you know, if, and this is, you have people who they do things like the, the transcontinental that, or they do the um, great divide or something like that. They come back and they have trouble adjusting back to normal life because they've gone through so many emotions ups and downs they've had to deal with all these problems they've been so your, your world comes down into this tiny little dot in front of you that you're focused on all the other peripheral nonsense you get no pauses you're just you know in a 24-hour race for instance you're not taking any time off there's no stops there's no it's bedtime and the new day starts and you get all these things and think like the power for me really of sport is that you can you can experience a whole what one of the time, you know, from trying to describe it, it's quite difficult if you've never experienced it, because you can't believe that anything in such a small time frame can actually change you physic physically and mentally so much. And but you come out the other side of an experience like that when you've overcome the hurdles that you encountered, you've over, you've ridden the last six hours of a 12 hour blown up for instance or with really low energy or you're being sick or and you've you just kept going and you've kept going and you like people love um goggins don't they love goggins and these overcoming stories yeah. the power of those overcoming stories is that he's just learned what people who don't do these extreme things have to learn over 30 years and when you've got that much time often you miss those lessons because you don't have to learn them. You can shy away from them. You can take some time out from work. You can, there's all these ways to avoid pain when you've got an endless time scale of a life. When you've got a race, well, you either deal with it or you don't perform. Yeah. And, and so that's the real, it's the, from, that's a real, you know, magnification of learning comes for that's where you get it through sport and i think this is what i see in so many of the athletes i work with why they transfer and they excel in other areas of their lives and some who have stopped some, some guys who are on my team who stopped racing they're now absolutely excel in another area of life in, in usually something to do with business they're still active but they're not racing anymore but the lessons they learned in racing about themselves and what they can handle and that this hurts, but it's not a problem, all transfer over in some degree. Sometimes we don't see the direct correlation, but it might be five years later, we deal with a situation, you know, my wife always says to me, 
you know, problem with a device for my son who's type 1 diabetic or something. And literally, I just go, what needs dealing with? There's no panic. There's no emergency. It's just like, and it's exactly the same thought patterns in a race where you go, my legs don't feel good now. Like, uh, <laughs> bridge to engine room, what is going on down there? Yeah. You know, all right, how do we do this? What do we do? And you're just looking for solution, solution, solution. All right, how good is the solution? Does it work? Can it get us? Can it bridge the gap to get the ambulance here or get to there? Or, you know, and, and there's, there have been a few situations I've been in now where either I was the lead rider on a group ride or I wasn't even involved with the group ride, but I came across the group ride where somebody was very badly injured and I've just gone, what's, what's happened? He's there. Don't, you go do that. You go do that. You get this. You get that. You get that. Shh, shh. Emergency services, don't be sorted, gone. And everyone's like, how does that happen? And for me, I don't think that's, I was never taught that. It's not training, but it is. It's learning to deal with this Very, yes. super intense situation that for me has grown from being a 90, a 60 minute race to a 90 minute race to 24 hours. A lot happens in your head in 24 hours. You can overcome you know, second to second, you might want to quit for a whole 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Override the script. Override this. It's painful, but it's fine. It's painful, but it's fine. It's a great example. You learn to respond when your amygdala fires and you're all emotional, cognitive dissidence, right? Our, our ability to think, boom, shuts down and we panic and we do dumb things or we lose our focus, et cetera, et cetera. And the injured, uh, person on the trail a couple of years ago, actually on a place that I had lost a wheel and got a laceration on my arm. You can go on my Instagram and look at it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> my military <laughs> buddies say only a flesh wound, but um, yeah. <laughs> I come around this corner and I'm, guess what? I learned, I slowed down and you take it better. But here's a guy who has got his new bike. It's actually a downhill bike and he's not clipped in. And it's a crazy Arizona Rocky section and he had launched and he was laying in the path down, laying, but kind of moving an arm. I get off my bike. I actually put my bike way up. Like you said, it. I kind of went into autopilot. I yeah. And another biker comes and I said, do you want to go for help or do you want me to? And we worked it out. Don't move the guy. God, he had blood coming out of his ear. It turned out he had multiple fractures on one side of his head. He broke his helmet and uh, I ended up, getting the EMTs back in there and all this stuff. And same thing felt really weirdly in control the whole time. And, yeah. and so I I'm definitely, cause I'm not a real blood fan guy. You know, I really respect <laughs> doctors and EMT people. I, it was yeah. weird. Same as you great example. Uh, still it's a biking example where this ability to respond that we develop over time can transfer into your life. I mean, usually it's a lot more subtle. You have a customer complaint, a product doesn't arrive where it's supposed to, or worse yet, the wrong product arrives. It's in a package where they can't ascertain it's actually different. And now you have a hundred million dollar construction project with a week delay. That's no fun, but yeah. you know, it charges the same kind of thing into your brain and you need to learn to respond and those around you, you need to learn to respond. Those are just excellent, excellent ideas. I'd love to hear about 
to hear you opine a little bit on, on this particular responding issue. You know, you talked a little bit about the last data hours of your race. Are those points where, I don't know, your internal voice or how do you get through them? How, besides the training, we know about the training in the conditioning that you talked about over time, but if you can take us to a challenging moment where you didn't blow up, but you're damn close, <laughs> you know, especially emotionally or mentally. The curious thing for me is that I can pinpoint the first time that I knew I had transferred to this way of thinking. I can pinpoint when I first realized I'd transferred to this way of thinking, but I can't pinpoint when it first happens and when I first started to feel and think this way. But the first time I remember, the first time I, I realized that this is how I now think, which had changed from at some point during my racing career. So the usual pattern of an athlete is that, that and there's, there's, a, there's another coach who's, um, who's got this concept of three levels of athlete. So we go through stage one, stage two, and stage three. And, and her, and I really like this model. She, she says that we start, and, and this is really something I've seen a lot. We start and we do it for whatever reason. Our friends do it, or we go get fit, or whatever. It's someone lends us a bike, whatever it is. And we do it and we go, wow, this is fun. Like, this is fun and it's good. And oh, I do it a bit more because it's fun. And I oh, actually, I feel quite good. I'm getting a bit fitter. And we start to see this progression and it's enjoyable and it's fun. And at some point, not for everybody, but for people who are of a certain type, who like progression and they like to have goals and things like this, we transfer to becoming level two athlete, where the outcome is now a very big part of what we do. Okay, so we're now, we want to succeed. We want to beat our friends or we want to win the regional champs or we want to do a certain time or whatever it is. We want to win the Tour de France, whatever it may be. And we transfer to this point. And some people stay there. That's the end of their journey. They stay as level two, level two athletes. Now, the problem with level two athletes, at some point, the, if the development stops in level two, it ceases to be fun anymore mm. because the outcome isn't being met or we miss an outcome or we have a setback. So now we're not happy about it or we've decided we want to do a 19-minute 10 and we do a PB, but it's only a 22, so it's a failure. So we start to lose track of outcomes become everything. We forget enjoyment. When an athlete transitions to level three, which is the ideal place to be, and you'll see, you know, if you see any interview with Nino Scherter, for instance, there's no doubt in my mind he's, a he's, a he's moved to level three a long time ago. It's fun. Yeah, he still wants to win stuff, but fun, it's got to be fun. It's, it's fun. He loves riding trails. He loves riding really fast down this. He loves catching air, even though there's a very slim possibility he might roll a tyre and not finish the race. And then not the outcome might be. So in level two, we start to see this kind of development of what happens. And, and for me personally, when I was a level two athlete, this is how races used to pan out. You go there with all the with the goal. Where do I want to finish? How do I want to do? What do I want to achieve? You start the race and you're either succeeding or you're failing towards that goal. Now, if you're failing and you're a level two athlete, you generally will fail from that point onwards during that race because you've got no fun to fall back on. 
and you're not succeeding in the only reason for being there. Okay. And so the wheels start to fall off. You feel worse and worse and worse. And, and, oh, now I can, I couldn't breathe properly. And you forget, like, you couldn't breathe properly last time. And you couldn't breathe, like, you would, for me, it's just like cross country is just like the worst race ever. You know, and I said, I said to you, has anyone suggested shorter races? And you described why I don't do them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but when you look at that, if you're doing well, right, and you're a level two athlete, what happens usually to the psychology next? You wish the rest of the race was over. Because I'm leading and now I might lose this lead. And you see these riders, they're looking back all the time. They're not focused on what they're worried about losing. They're worried about losing. In road racing, the guys who are stuck in zone two, they're the guys who chase down every attack because they don't want to lose. So if your third cat racing is really difficult because nearly everyone doesn't want to lose. So no, it's impossible to get away in the break because every single break will be chased down by everybody. When you're in a first cat race, people are trying to win. Yeah. When you're in the elites, people are trying to win. So they're running their own race and it's fun and they understand themselves. So, but part of this equates all the way over into the rest of life. And the, the time I realized that I had transferred, and I don't think it's just an athlete thing. I think this really transfers into life. And, you know, when I speak to people who are amazingly successful in business, they've always transferred to this level three or whatever it is i had actually broken my arm so i i'd fallen off a skateboard age 40 i'd broken my arm and then the 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 radius was smashed into several bits and it was all displaced it hadn't popped through the skin but it needed that pull to pull it straight and so before that day i if you'd asked me in that much pain what did I want to do? I just want them to fix it. I don't want to know about it. If I can, if you can put me under, I'll have it. Like, I don't want to be there. Like, I don't want to experience that. I actually wanted to experience the whole thing. I was just like, they were saying, take the, I was like, I'll take enough of the oxygen so that it isn't unbelievably painful when I pass out. But I want to know what they're doing and I want to experience it and I want to feel the bone move. And so, so for me, that's really where the progression happens, where you become, you know, for me, that was where, you know, when I did the 24 hour race in years gone by, when I was a level two athlete, you're wrestling demons all the way through because you're, you know, it's just, it's too long. Like you get sleep deprivation, you get pain, you like bits of you literally don't want to work. Like you, you go to get off the bike and like, Whoa, like the bike was holding me up, you know? So I'm taking you with a mountain bike. You reach a point in mountain biking, especially we have some awful muddy courses here where literally if you're in a team or it was a cross country race, you just pedal harder and get through there. But you cannot produce the force anymore. You can't produce the amount of power required to get from here to there across that muddy section. So you will have to walk this bit. It's not that you, at some point, it's just physically impossible now to pass this section and there's 12 more hours so every time i get to this section i am going to have to walk this and so people reach this point where it's like well now it's failure because this is mountain biking you know it depends what your personal perspective is each person has these um you know 
I always like want to ask the athlete, what are your unwritten rules? You know, because your unwritten rules are usually the things that scramble you and ruin the race for you. If you've got a thing that everything must be rideable because you're an elite athlete and you're in a 24 hour race, you're probably going to bail at some point because you won't be able to ride it all. <laughs> you will have to walk some of it, you know, and that's just how it is, you know. So people's scripts of their unwritten scripts. So for me, you enjoyed Rob's expertise on all these topics. In particular, a takeaway for me was the importance of consistency over time and the way that builds capacity so that you can get the next adaption. If you lose that consistency, you actually pull back and have to start over. And what's really interesting is to ponder how that can affect other parts of your life, including your career, as you add knowledge, skills, and disciplines. The next takeaway was really that we can't do all things all the time. When Rob talked about the ability to handle three things in his experience as a coach, and when his subjects add maybe a fourth, things start to unravel and fall apart. That's really quite interesting. And you can find out a little bit more about that in my Margin Max Minute where I address purposeful out of balance, which is essentially that, making those decisions to decide what not to do so you can adapt and get the goals and objectives that you're really after. I hope that you will join us in the next podcast for part two, where Rob will cover his technique of actually accepting what's horrible to come as a way to cope and really ramp up your game with mental toughness. He tells us through a story of a 24-hour national championship mountain bike race, which is just an amazing story in and of itself. Rob expands on the idea of focus using a great term that I'll save for him to introduce. It's just a great little memory jog to decide how to focus what you should do and what you shouldn't do. The next aspect Rob spends a lot of time is to expand on the concept of what a level three athlete is. And we get into a pretty interesting discussion on how that overflows that process love what you're doing going forward into all aspects of your life as one of the key components of the benefit of doing sport on the other parts of your life. And finally, Rob sums up discussing how the importance of a coach to really get to higher levels of performance is so important, not only for people that are pursuing something like a mountain bike goal, but also in our careers and in our life. What happens with coaching, how coaches are able to see the gains that are out there and properly pace the training and encourage consistency over time for much better endpoint performance, really in all aspects of our life. So I hope you'll join us for that next podcast. It's going to be really interesting. You're going to love to hear about Rob's experiences and how he brings these very important concepts forward with some great war stories of his career. I hope you'll join us. It's time to get to work.